Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. British broadcaster Nick Bailey was a presenter on Britain's classic FM radio station for 25 years. In fact, it was his voice that first launched the station in 1992. But he cites his earlier classical music training at RTHK in the 1970s, with helping him succeed at this later job. Nick Bailey has written a book about his life and how he begins his broadcasting career aboard pirate ship Radio Caroline. His book is called Across the Waves, from Radio Caroline to Classic FM. I caught up with him on the phone from his home in England. Well, my first love of radio happened when I was in Australia. I went to Australia when I was 11 with my parents. My father uh, was an actor. Uh, his name is Robin Bailey. And he was in the original production of My Fair Lady, the Australian production of My Fair Lady, where he played Professor Higgins. And we started in Melbourne, but then uh, went on to Sydney, uh, which is where I was at school. And I was in Sydney, so I was 14 years old, and I started to... Well, I had been listening to radio for some time, but for some reason at that particular age, listening to a disc jockey by the name of John Laws, and I thought, this sounds like a pretty good job. He was playing pop music of the day and he was on I think between 7 and 10 at night and that's when I used to listen mostly I think and I thought this sounds like a pretty good job you're playing records that you know I could play records on my own choice <laughs> and hold four and I could hold four for three hours as well and get paid for it I took it seriously from the point of view that um, I made my own radio station in my parents living room my father had a tape recorder and so I would record programs. I called the radio station Radio XYZ. I had an Australian accent at the time. All Australian radio stations have a, a call sign uh, with numbers and letters and things. And uh, I interspersed it with uh, comedy clips from a Peter Sellers album that was out at the time called Songs for Swinging Sellers. My feet are swinging, my head is spinning. You've got me dangling on a line Oh yes, you've got me spinning all the time Hmm, not quite right yet, I, I grant you, but it, it'll come, it'll come uh, I never thought for a moment that I would, I would you know, get into radio seriously But it was serious enough for me to actually, you know, set up this mini radio station <laughs> Which only had, an, only had an audience of me because we didn't have a transmitter or anything But that's how I got into it now, where do you first start professionally? Well, professionally was five years later. And by this time, we'd come back to the UK. I was 15. I hated the thought of coming back to the UK. I uh, didn't do well at school and uh, had a variety of jobs. With First of all, a, a travelling theatre company, and then I worked in the Mermaid Theatre in London where I was the assistant press officer. And it was at the Mermaid in London that I met uh, a travelling Australian. He was Tasmanian, but he was working in the box office, and he was working his way around the world. And he got a job. Uh, he had been a, a radio actor, and he, he got a job as a newsreader on uh, Radio Caroline, which had started in 1964. So this was now 66. And I remember saying to him as a joke, uh, you know, if, if there are any jobs going, uh, let me know. Lo and behold, two weeks later, he said, well, there are a couple of jobs going. Would you like to audition? Serving the British Isles, 14 swinging hours a day, this is 199 Radio Caroline. 
Yeah, so can you explain to Hong Kong listeners what Radio Caroline was? Well, Radio Caroline became known as a pirate ship because it was a ship to start off with, and we had to be three miles outside UK waters, so we were in international waters, so we couldn't be arrested. Well, it was called Pirate Radio because we had the, the aura of uh, the, the old pirates, and I think one, one needs to explain that in those days, so 64 when Radio Caroline started, the BBC had the monopoly. There was no Radio 1 then, so there was no channel playing pop music. There was the BBC Light programme, which did play occasional uh, pop records, but they were in thrall to the musicians' union, and their stipulation was that, you, yes, you can play the hits, but you have to use a BBC orchestra. Well, you can imagine how awful that was to the teenagers of the day. They just didn't listen. So Ronan O'Reilly, this Irishman, saw a, a gap in the market, and uh, his father uh, owned the shipyard in Ireland, which helped, and uh, they had an old Danish ferry called the Federicia, which they decked out in all the sort of things you need uh, for a radio station, so studios and an antenna. And that was the original pirate ship. And it was really the pirates, because the wasn't just Radio Caroline, eventually there were quite a few of them, became the soundtrack to the swinging 60s. And without the pirate ships, a lot of the well-known records, the uh, White Shade of Pale Purple Harm, for instance, would never have been a hit because um, unknown pieces the BBC just wouldn't have looked at. Radio was very important. It was because of Pirate Radio that Radio 1 
was launched in 1967. So what was your role, uh, Radio Caroline? Well, my role, uh, well, I wanted to be a disc jockey, but my role uh, was as a newsreader. Uh, each ship had a, a couple of newsreaders, and this is what I auditioned for. And my job was not just to read the news, but also to write the news. And we shamefully, or shamelessly, if you like, pinched news from the BBC <laughs> uh, and, and, just, and just rewrote it. So that was my job, to record the news from what was then the BBC Live programme. And I think we used Voice of America as well. We used various sources. And then I would write, totally write the news in, in the way that I wanted and I could change stories around uh, and that sort of thing. We had news. The shift pattern on board was two weeks on, one week off. And in my first week, I worked from five in the morning till six at night with a, a bulletin. I think in breakfast there was one every half hour. And then at six o'clock at night, there was a half hour news bulletin. So it was quite news heavy. Uh, although primarily it was there for the uh, for the music. In my second week, I was joined by a colleague, so I only had to work till um, I think one o'clock. I chose the breakfast shift delivery, and the third week uh, I had off. But it was an absolutely fantastic, uh, fantastic time. And when did but you I work there? Uh, I joined Radio Caroline South in September of '66, and I was on the South ship for a month. And then I was transferred to the North Ship, which was three miles off Ramsey in the Isle of Man, which was a godsend because I found the disc jockeys on the South Ship uh, megalomaniacs, really, and um, I didn't find them particularly pleasant. Also, the South Ship was a very small ship because the original ship, the Federation, by this time had moved to the North. And so whereas on the South Ship I had to share a cabin with three others, on the North Ship I had my own uh, my own cabin. It was a lovely ship, and I, and I liked the disc jockeys on board as well. Now, with you being two weeks on board, you would then have... So, I mean, you're basically two weeks out at sea. Two weeks out at sea, uh, and then they would fly you back to wherever your home was. In my case, it was London. It was amazing now, looking back, how the, the Irish Sea... I was primarily on the North Ship, so the Irish Sea could be very, very rough. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, did you ever sort of feel sick while you were on air? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I was very lucky not to never feel seasick, but it did mean that when I was reading the news, because all the studios had windows, uh, when I was reading the news, I could see sea one moment and sky uh, oh. the next, you know. And there was, one, there was one night which was quite scary, well, very scary, because the captain called us all out of bed at two o'clock in the morning, there was a raging storm, so we were a bit worried anyway, and he called us all out of bed and asked to put, uh, to put life jackets on. And I think this was um, you know, obviously a precursor to abandoning a ship, but luckily the storm passed, and so that we didn't have to get into the lifeboats. But conversely, uh, the Irish Sea could be like a mill pond, and uh, like glass, really. And uh, it was on days like this that we would go in the summer that we would swim off the side and also go for little fishing trips. So, <laughs> you know, it, was, it was quite amazing. What was dangerous, was, particularly when it was rough, was we were supplied, uh, it was a Dutch company that supplied all the food and they supplied all the crew. We had a Dutch captain. Uh, and they had um, tenders that came out from Ramsey in the Isle of Man to bring out mail and supplies uh, and also personnel. 
and they would come out in all weathers and they would come alongside where there would be a, a rope ladder and you had to jump onto the rope ladder and, and if you missed your footing it could be very dangerous you could be squashed uh, luckily as far as i know that this never happened but you could be really squashed and possibly be killed by the tender hitting the side and you being caught between the tender and the ship itself so this is your start. Your, I mean, that's a very interesting start to your radio career, really. And then where do you move on from Radio Caroline to? Well, Caroline came to an end for most people when the Marine Broadcasting Offences Act was passed, and that was passed on the 14th of August, 1967. Caroline actually continued to broadcast, but most of the original people on board decided to leave, including me. But then I was stuck, because what was I going to do? Uh, the only experience I'd had was news reading. I didn't have any presentation experience as such. In those days, there were no BBC local radio stations. I'd never heard of the British Forces Broadcasting Service, who I subsequently worked for. And so I thought, having loved Australia when I was there, and it was Australia that gave me the love of radio in the first place, why don't I emigrate? And in those days, you could emigrate for... £10, and we became known as the £10 Poms. And uh, I thought, apart from anything else, this would be a wonderful adventure. Uh, and so that's what I did. And I left on the 18th of February 1968 to set sail for Sydney. And um, I got there uh, five weeks later. Couldn't get a job initially because I spoke with a Tommy accent. Uh, but after about six months, not by design, I just absorbed it, I suppose. I spoke with uh, an Australian accent <laughs> and got a job and got a job in the um, I, I was I was trying to get a job in Sydney but uh, I was given some very good advice by someone and said look if you want presentation experience you've got to go uh, into the outback and I applied for a job in a place called Moree which is 400 miles northwest of Sydney it was the Wheaton Wool Centre of New South Wales although it was closer to Brisbane than Sydney and that's where I got my first uh, presentation uh, experience oh, in the outback <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a town an outback town of uh, 10,000 people millions of sheep but only 10,000 people but that, that's where I initially cut my teeth and what brought you to Hong Kong basically I stayed in Australia for almost five years working in radio from Maury I went to Townsville which was a much bigger station Townsville in Queensland and eventually I ended up in Brisbane uh, but after five years in Australia, I got itchy feet, and I wanted to work my way back to the UK. And it wasn't the Radio 3 and 4 as it is now. I, was, I think they had the AM and the FM channel. Uh, I only wanted to stay a few months, and they were one-month rolling contracts. And whilst there, I had my first taste of presenting classical music. Yeah, so you do initial four months and then head back to the UK. And what brought you back to Hong Kong? I came back to to the UK, as you say. Um, I was looking for a job in commercial radio, but that didn't happen. But I did join the British Forces Broadcasting Service. And that was prompted by the fact that when I was in Hong Kong for those four months, Radio Hong Kong was playing uh, tapes that had been made by the FBS in London. I thought this is of a very high standard. So that prompted me to apply for that organisation when I got back. And I went to initially Gibraltar and then Cologne and then Berlin. But eventually I was sent uh, back to Hong Kong to set up the English language service of BFPS Hong Kong. There was, there was already a Gurkha service. I was based in Sekong 
And then I was in Hong Kong for almost three years, I think it was, and I was pleased to give RTHK, as it was then, uh, a run for its money. And then I was promoted and sent back to the UK, but I, uh, I went back and I hated, I hated the job, wasn't very good at the job, I didn't like the UK, missed Hong Kong, and so I negotiated to come back to Hong Kong. I loved Hong Kong and I loved the job. Uh, I was given the task of open line uh, initially, and then I did a, a chat program called After Eleven, uh, where I interviewed all kinds of um, interesting people, and eventually that led on to uh, Hong Kong Today. Tell me about some of the people you interviewed. After Eleven, my brief on that was to get four guests per day, and we would get some very big names, and, and ideally get them in live. Uh, I mean, the one person I particularly remember is uh, Peter Yusnoff, who was fascinating. He had all kinds of anecdotes, but in particular, so this was after 11 was 85, he, he talked about the assassination of Indira Gandhi because he had been in Delhi, all set to interview Mrs. Gandhi uh, when he heard shots. And I think the, the last words that uh, Indira Gandhi said were almost Peter Yusinov because her servants had brought out a tea set uh, they were all set to have tea before the interview. And she said to the servants, I think we need a better tea set for Peter Yusinov. Uh And then a few seconds later, her seat bodyguards um, gunned her down. So and that was a fascinating story, along with some um, less tragic um, anecdotes. What do you do, though, as an interviewer about to interview Indira Gandhi as part of this documentary? She's, it happened in the morning. You were waiting for her for another session. Over the, she, for the real first proper session without the noise of aeroplanes. And she's yes. assassinated. Yes. What do you do? Because in a way you don't want to intrude, but on the other hand you want to offer sympathy. We, uh, I recorded a piece to camera uh, a minute after the assassination, uh, expressing the hope that she'd get better quickly, which now is uh, a very uh, sad and slightly nerve-wracking because... Uh, we knew something very untoward had happened. And it was untoward in that it started with three single shots, uh, to which the Indian cameraman said, <laughs> firecrackers, we are very childish people. If there are firecrackers left over from a great event, we can't resist exploding them. He had all that time to say that before there was a burst of machine gun fire, which meant that the assassins themselves were obviously nervous, and they shot with a revolver three times, and when she was lying on the ground, they filled her with machine-gun bullets. And there was another burst of machine-gun bullets about seven minutes later, which suggested, even at the time, that it, that was a settling of accounts of some sort, attempting to escape one of those things. Uh, we never got to the bottom of it, but we were asked to play that aspect of the time difference down, I said I couldn't. I'd have to tell the truth if I was asked. But we were kept in the garden for six hours before being released. Uh, India is rather like an elephant which is stung by a wasp, and everybody knows the hide is so thick it won't feel the sting for another two hours. Though so there's time to shut the shops and get everything ready before the rioting begins. In that sense, they didn't want us on the loose, having heard what we did. I think the success of that programme led to me being asked 
to help co-launch Hong Kong Today with the newsroom, which is, uh, I think, Hong Kong Today still going, isn't it? Oh, yes. And so this was in 1987. By then, we'd had a new director of broadcasting, Cheng Man Yi, and she wanted to shake up uh, the newsroom. What she wanted, particularly with the, the political situation in Hong Kong and the uh, with 10 years to go to the handover to China, she wanted something more live, more active, and uh, this is how Hong Kong Today came into being. And I launched it with the original news co-host, Nick uh, Beecroft. And I did that from 1987 right through to when I left in uh, 1992. Although by 1990, I also became head of Radio 3. So I was, uh, I was doing the two, which became a little bit daunting. But uh, I was determined to keep broadcasting as well. Yes, no, a lot of work. During your time at uh, Hong Kong today, what would you have said are some of the big events? Well, the biggest event and tragic event was uh, the events of June the 4th, 1989, with the, the, the tragic events unfolding in Tiananmen Square. I was on air on that day. We were on air for about nine or, or ten hours. Um, I had, ironically, I'd taken some leave um, because I was doing A-level history. And um, we knew things were bad because in May, uh, martial law had been introduced, and at that point, Hong Kong Today had been extended. But we had no, well, I had no idea, and the rest of the newsroom and the rest of Hong Kong, uh, we didn't think for one moment that, the, uh, that China would move towards the students, so I thought it was safe to take a week's leave. But then I was watching the news that night and uh, uh, you know, terrible reports were coming in about students being killed. So I phoned Terry Nilon, who was the, uh, the editor of Hong Kong Today, to say, you know, I'm, I'm cancelling my study leave, I'm, I'm going to come in. And uh, it, obviously tragic, but as a broadcaster, an event that I didn't want to, uh, want to miss. And we just took calls all day, uh, including some from China that we managed to get, uh, to get through. I don't know how we managed that, but we did. Uh, and uh, it was a very poignant time. And then we, we continued doing that on Hong Kong Today uh, for certainly a week or two. We weren't broadcasting quite as many hours, but it was, that was quite something. And it led up to the, the time when there were a million protesters in Hong Kong. Hong Kong at that time had six million, so there was a large chunk of the population marching in support of mm. the students. So Cinnamon Square, obviously, number one. Uh, there was the uh, Vietnamese boat people that uh, reached uh, its height, I suppose. The, the actual number of people coming in was the following year, uh, and the situation that they were being put in uh, camps, uh, which led to uh, Gerald Kaufman, the Labour politician, uh, accusing me and accusing Hong Kong of, of, of putting these people in the concentration camps and referring to the situation in the Second World War, uh, which was an uneasy uh, interview, I must say. One of the reports I did for Radio 5 uh, was when I was in Macau on a holiday and from, uh, we were staying at the facade of the Colorado, and from my hotel room I could see a fishing boat full of bedraggled-looking people, about 30 of them, and I thought maybe it was just a fishing vessel that had been blown off course. But on closer inspection, these were refugees, and I'm fairly certain they were Vietnamese boat refugees. And they were being, uh, the Macau police had come out, and they were being pushed back.
back to sea. And the terrible thing about that was there was a typhoon um, that was imminent, and I never knew whether they actually made it um, into Hong Kong or not. And the other story, uh, which was one of the first stories that we covered on Hong Kong Today in 87, was the stock market crash. Uh, we, we launched the program in February, so this was, I think, around about October. Now, when you return to London, is that uh, so you then uh, also, I mean, you, you're talking about here you helped found Hong Kong Today, and then, then back in Long London, you were also at the forefront or at the start of Classic FM? I heard of this radio station uh, starting up called Classic FM, which was going to be the first national commercial radio station in, in Britain. And I went for an interview and I sent an audition tape and uh, I got the job. And not only did I get the job, but I was given the task of the breakfast show, which meant I launched it. So I left Hong Kong in July of 92 and got off the plane and went straight to this uh, new job. Uh, sort of around the end of July, I suppose, and it was launched on the 7th of September, 1992. And uh, certainly my, the classical experience I'd had at RTHK in 1970-73 uh, came in extremely handy. I think without that, I might have struggled. But um, so, you know, that, I can thank Hong Kong in a way for, <laughs> for giving me the experience in the first place, which led to me getting this job. And at Classic FM, how many years were you there? I was there for exactly 25 years. Whilst there, I did all kinds of uh, shifts. I did the breakfast show twice, actually. I did it on and off for seven years. I did a, a Sunday morning program called Classic Romance, which I did for seven years. I did the evening concert for about six years. I did an afternoon program. And uh, eventually, as often happens in broadcasting as you get older, I was given the overnight program. Uh, which I did for eight years. I called it the Pumpkin Club because of the hours that it was. Uh, but the great thing about that was, although in the UK it was it was you know overnight, uh, but even then it still had an audience of four hundred thousand. But it was going worldwide because by that time everyone could listen on their computers, and I had loads of people listening in Hong Kong and America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. So for someone like me who loves travel so much, in fact, I've used radio really uh, to pursue my love of travel so it was a great program uh, it was a great program to do Classic FM News, it's six o'clock. I'm Sarah Shepherd. Police searched a number of hotels in central London over... Classic FM. 
The rainfall radar currently shows heavy bursts of rain over southeast England, but these will soon clear. Then all of England and Wales will have some sunshine with a 20% chance of a shower. There's a 70% chance of heavy blustery showers over Scotland and Northern Ireland, where it'll also be very windy. It'll be cool everywhere, with temperatures typically around 15 or 16 degrees Celsius. Classic FM News, it's six minutes past six. Good morning and welcome to Britain's first national commercial radio station. This is Classic FM. I'm Nick Bailey and this is George Frederick Handel. My thanks to Nick Bailey talking there about his life in broadcasting. His autobiography is called Across the Waves, from Radio Caroline to Classic FM. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.